I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Tom Stevenson, a contributing editor at the LRB. His book, Someone Else's Empire, British Illusions and American Hegemony, was published last November. He has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the war in Ethiopia's Tigray region. It's a review of Understanding Ethiopia's Tigray War by Martin Plort and Sarah Vaughan. Hello, Tom, and thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Between November 2020 and October 2022, as you write in the piece, hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed in a civil war that drew very little attention internationally. We'll come to some of the possible reasons for that neglect a bit later. Uh, But first, Tom, perhaps you could talk us through the question of how and why the war broke out, which, as you say, goes far beyond the events of a few days in early November 2020. Yes, I mean, there's, it, it's an enormously contentious uh, question, actually. I mean, the the war itself, as little known as it is, was also subject to a major debate over exactly how it started, uh, one which is not, it must be said, entirely resolved in every detail. Uh, the story, according to the Ethiopian government, Abiy Ahmed's government, uh, was that the Tigray region, and so we're right in the north of Ethiopia, along the border with Eritrea, started to try and break out of government control by uh, declaring its own regional elections, and then subsequently by staging attacks on army outposts, on federal forces outposts uh, within the Tigray region itself, and thus initiated a kind of an insurgency of its own. And therefore, from the government of Ethiopia's perspective, the war was simply a a kind of a police operation, uh, a limited sort of special military operation, let's say, to try and repress a domestic insurgency. However, I think the the scholarship in the form of Martin Plot and Sarah Vaughan's book, and also, as my piece tries to argue, shows that that's really a completely insufficient account. Not only was it not simply a case of a regional government getting uh, out of hand, but in fact, there seems to be very good evidence of not just a national plan on the part of view of Abiy Ahmed's government, but also an international uh tripartite conspiracy between the government of Ethiopia, the government of Eritrea, and also to a much lesser extent, the government of Somalia, in order to stage really a regional war on a huge scale. So the charge, for example, from the government that the Tigrayan forces had just arbitrarily attacked government outposts, when one looks at the details such as we have them, uh, really is insupportable. Prior to the war, you have, for example, weeks of Ethiopian satellite TV stations calling for a multi-sided assault on Tigray, which would include Eritrea and Somalia, in a kind of detail which would be extremely suspicious, given how precise that subsequently turned out to be. Another factor, for example, is how quickly Ethiopian government and Eritrean government forces were able to, to begin a major ground campaign in Tigray. It took them basically a matter of days. And if you were to compare that to sort of other major wars, I mean, for example, Israel's assault in Gaza 
they began the bombing almost immediately, but the ground campaign required at, at least a couple of weeks of preparation and on a much, much smaller geographic scale. So all of these points bring us to an entirely different picture of the war. In fact, one that was almost certainly conceived years beforehand, you know, perhaps as early as 2018 or 2019, uh, and then conducted in accordance with much more uh, complex dynamics. And then another question is, how did these divisions occur? And then for that, you need sort of an account of Ethiopian political history, at least for the preceding decades. So let's look at that history now. I mean, I don't know if we need to go all the way back to Menelik II in the late 19th century, but I mean, maybe maybe we do. Yes, I mean, I think at the very least, we need to have some con consideration of the basic political dynamics in Ethiopia, which, which are enormously complex. I mean, you're talking about a country of more than 100 million people, multiple regions, which has experienced a great deal of political complexity and also of, of Elan and, and of experiments with political formations and so on. So by no means a simple story. Um, but I think in sort of the broadest strokes, you could say that there's been a real contradiction historically between a conception of Ethiopia as a kind of, almost as a modern empire, as the state that was, as you said, that was founded by Menelik II and then ruled over predominantly in the 20th century by Haile Selassie, or as a kind of a multinational federation. And those competing visions between relatively centralized state and then relatively decentralized confederation have played out multiple times over the course of the history. And they indeed, in this war, they were very prominently on display as well. So in the 1970s, you have the overthrow and the execution of Haile Selassie as emperor and the beginning of the rule by the Derg by a sort of a broadly, roughly Marxist-Leninist military commission and the initiation then of a series of sort of rolling, oscillating civil wars and indeed fat, brutal famines uh, during the 70s and 80s, which then culminates in probably critically for our story in 1991 with the overthrow of the Derg by a new political formation, uh, the EPRDF, which is basically more or less led, nominally it's a heterarchy, but more or less led by the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, which obviously is based in Tigray. And the result of that war is that you have a, an Ethiopia in 1991, where, which in contrast to Europe, for example, where you have multinational federations, Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union being dissolved, here you have one being initiated in Ethiopia. And the idea here is instead of a centralized state, you have a relatively decentralized state where the individual regions are confederated, have a certain degree of autonomy to themselves and so on. But nonetheless, within that uh, picture, Tigray has a significant amount of you know, influence over the national politics. And I think what happened after that was it became clear that uh, the sophistication of that vision was really nonetheless held together by a single political leader, Mela Zanawi, who was uh, Eritrean Tigrayan by heritage, the head of the TPLF and prime minister of uh, Ethiopia for many years. While he was alive and uh, running the system, it appeared to do reasonably well. You had GDP growth above 10%. You had great improvements in life expectancy. You had basically a form of developmentalism, albeit combined with, uh, it must be said, a fairly substantial political repression. But then when Melissa we died in 2012, there was the initiation of an entirely new era uh, under a new leader, Haile Mariam Dessalain, and very quickly that system began to fragment. That period of fragmentation, which was set off in 2012, came to a head in 2016 or 2018 by the latest with the rise of Abiy Ahmed. And all of a sudden, old regional antinomies, the complexity of the constitution, 
relitigations of border disputes within the country between the regions all came out to a head and probably in an important way set the stage for the war that would break out in November 2020. Of course, another important thing that happened in the early 90s was that Eritrea, which had been part of Ethiopia, became independent. I mean, Eritrea presumably could have been a part of a federal Ethiopia, but but it didn't. I mean, how important is that for what's happened in the last couple of years? Well, there's no question that Eritrea played an enormously important role in Ethiopia's history in the 20th century and then and also in this war. Um, in fact, in Martin Plot's section of the book, uh, he makes the case that Eritrea is in some, in some respects the most important mover in the war. So Eritrea was part of Ethiopia for several periods during the Ethiopian state's history. But between 1962 and 1991, there was essentially a 30-year major war of independence, extremely bloody, hundreds of thousands of people killed, in which the EPLF, the major Eritrean uh, political formation, attempted to separate itself from, from Ethiopia. The, the divisions here, I think you could trace back partly being geographical, partly being cultural, partly as sort of as a result of the multinational character of Ethiopia as a state, and then also historical and contingent in, in those ways. And then Eritrea does become independent from Ethiopia in the 1990s and embarks on its own path. Um, path in which it embarks, incidentally, is, ends up being a pretty negative one in every respect. Extremely repressive, a great deal of poverty for the people who live there, mandatory military service for indefinite periods of time, quite a grim picture and an interesting story. Uh, but nonetheless, part of this wider picture that is bound up with the sense of who and what should Ethiopia as a state control and encompass, um, and ends up coming back, of course, in this war. Between 1998 and 2018, there's a major war that breaks out between Eritrea and Ethiopia, the border war between 98 and 2000. Again, very bloody. It's never fully solved. It's the, there's no full formal armistice. And the hostilities between the two sides aren't completely quashed until 2018 when uh, Abiy Ahmed decides to strike a peace deal with Azai Zafwerki, the leader of Ethiopia, uh, who's been in power for 30 years. That's the deal that ends up getting Abiy fated internationally. And it also ends up being important for this war uh, because there's now good evidence, which is documented in Port and Vaughan's book, that as part of the normalization agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, there was also a formal military alliance. The two leaders begin visiting one another's countries very frequently, more than a dozen times, inspecting the troops on both sides of the border. And also they hold, hold an important summit with the regional leaders of Tigray. What exactly happened at that summit remains unknown, but uh, Isai Zafwerki, the leader of Eritrea, has subsequently said that after that meeting, he began preparations for war. So all of this points to the fact that this was in the works from multiple different directions. So what were the reasons that Eritrea wanted to go to war on Tigray, that, that Abiy wanted to go to war on Tigray, what was in it for them? Before the 1990s, the two sort of major political centers of power outside of Addis are probably in Tigray and in Eritrea. And during the war on the Derg, uh, which culminates in the victory in 1991, the two sides are allied. But almost immediately after the uh, independence of Eritrea, you get an outbreaking of major antinomian differences between the Tigray regional government, now in control of Addis Ababa, and Eritrea. And there's a real failure, perhaps on both sides, to establish cordial post-independence relations. So that history of Eritrea having been part of Ethiopia and now being independent, 
the two sides having fought side by side and then being sort of quite sharply separated. And then perhaps also the quite radically different developmental paths that occur between the two countries, with Eritrea essentially having to close the border with Ethiopia because of the enormous difference in economic outcomes between the two sides. All of that ended up playing together in a kind of a general antinomy, which develops between them. And I mean, it's, it's known for many years that Eritrea blames the Tigrayan leadership which of course then is in the paramount position in Ethiopia uh, for, for example, for the imposition of sanctions on Eritrea in 2009. The Tigrayans blame the Eritrean side for having prevented aid from reaching them in past wars and in, also in past famines. So all of these old uh, differences, which were quashed previously because of the exigencies of a, of, a, of a major civil and regional war, then come to the fore later. And at least if, I think if you listen to the statements of Isaiah Zavwerki, there's this sense of vengeance which is involved from the Eritrean side wanting to settle old scores. And what's in it for Abiy? Is it that the Tigrayan political elite pose a threat to his power in Addis Ababa? Is he worried about losing, losing control, losing power in, over the whole of Ethiopia? Or is it that he cut this deal with Eritreans so he owes it to them? What was, the, what was in it for him? In my view, the sort of immediate... Uh, cause of this war really does lie in 2018 with the rise of Abiy Ahmed as a political figure. And I think you have to go back to that moment. So Abiy presents himself as a decisive break from the past. He's saying, look, the political system in Ethiopia from the, the EPRDF system from 1991 onwards was corrupt. It's the source of all the wrongs and everything that's gone wrong in the country. And I will present a, a fundamentally different leadership and future than that. But Abiy himself was, of course, previously an EPRDF cadre. Does it not talked about as much anymore, but he was part of the party machinery. In 2018, he really shifts his position, and he shifts his position on the question of uh, uh, the major political eruptions that take place in in the Oromo region, and he backs the the protesters. He backs the opposition movement, and it's on that basis that he's able to bring himself forward as a major candidate for the uh, prime ministry after the resignation of Dessaline. He refounds the party eventually as the Prosperity Party. And almost immediately as he does that, he starts targeting the, the TPLF. Uh, and I think the reason is basically political expediency. The TPLF can be made to stand for everything that's gone wrong. They're the leaders who were in place before. And on top of that, there's, there's a part of Abiy needing to cement his position. It's important for him to try and root out the old party machinery, which was very much part of the state. I mean, between 91 and you know, 2017, 18, the EPRDF really is well integrated into the state machinery. The, the party almost becomes like a professional association of the state. And so with Abiy taking over the reins, it's clear that he needs to establish a different power base. He does that in multiple different ways. One of them, for example, through Pentecostal Christianity, uh, you know, through sort of non-political channels. But another is by, I think, really treating the TPLF as the major enemy that that Ethiopia collectively needs to overcome. Interestingly, his program as well is is predicated on a new kind of pan-Ethiopianism. So in this sort of ongoing struggle between whether Ethiopia is going to be a centralized, fundamentally a centralized national state or a multinational confederation, he takes a national centralized path. The watchword for this is Medemer, which probably translates best as synergy. And the idea is, you know, you're going to go back to a sort of a re-centralized system, which of course is very convenient for Abiy as the new leader of that. So then hostilities break out in November 2020. What happens then? 
In November 2020, the TPLF uh, does stage these attacks on the local army army outposts. It says the reason is that there's already been the day before an attempt by um, Ethiopian uh, federal forces to make a series of arrests on their leadership in the region and to take over parts of the important infrastructure in the region. That's still debated, but nonetheless, this is the story. And almost immediately, there's a general attack on Tigray. From the north, you have Eritrean forces who've been reinforced by Somalian, uh, by about 5,000 Somalian troops as well. Uh, from the southwest, you have the regional Amhara militia, which join in with uh, the government forces advancing into western Tigray. And from the south, you have the Ethiopian uh, national federal forces who are assaulting uh, straight to the north. So it's, it's really a pincer movement on Tigray. And the Tigrayan forces are not ready. In fact, they on practically every front they ended up they end up having to capitulate. They lose territory, and really very quickly the Ethiopian forces are able to uh, take control of Mekele, which is the the regional capital in Tigray. Uh, this incidentally is associated with a very very severe level of violence. The places that are captured, there are numerous massacres. The Tigrayan forces themselves are not completely innocent on that front as well. There's no question that they've carried out numerous atrocities in, in the places where they were able to fight back or regain territory of their own. A very high degree of sexual violence in the conflict and an enormous number of uh, deaths. But nonetheless, within a relatively brief period of time, the, this pincer attack works and the Ethiopian forces seize Mekele and, and occupy it, driving the TPLF out. For its part, the Tigrayan forces, while they were unprepared clearly for what had happened, were not uh, totally without the means of defending themselves. They withdraw outside of the major cities, to the towns, to the hills, and they begin trying to reformulate a strategy. The strategy that they eventually come up with is something close to a general popular mobilization. And right across Tigray, you have people from all quarters of life. You have, excuse me, people from all walks of life. You have everyone from doctors to tanners essentially taking up arms, training in the hills to try to reject this imposition of a new caretaker government in their region. They take up arms, they spend time training, and after a period of about a year, they're ready to counterattack. They keep on the fight in the countryside, and then eventually they're able to take over some of the population centers and start threatening Mekele. As we go and then go forward through the war, we find that they're able to finally make an assault. The sort of puppets regional government that's been installed in Tigray by Addis is realizes that its time is up. It burns its papers and it sort of takes 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 to the road. When the Tigrayans recapture Mekele, it's something of a celebration. You know, they march uh, forces that they've captured through the streets. They hold big parades and so on. And certainly, uh, sort of the they feel that a great part of their work has been done by trying to re reject the Ethiopian government's control of Tigray. Nonetheless, what this clearly points to is the level of fragmentation that's happened in the country. You've already had a massive round of fighting, and at this point you're left with Ethiopia essentially in a major state of civil war all across the north of the country. And at that point, I mean, presumably they could have consolidated in Tigray, perhaps, I don't know, gone for independence or, or whatever, but instead they decided to march south towards Addis Ababa. This is one of the most interesting questions about this war, I think. Uh, Martin Ford in the book makes the case that the Tigrayans were perhaps faced with fewer options than we may now subsubsequently look back on, because what, what else were their, inter what their alternatives? Once the Tigrayans had reconquered Me Mekele, 
and sort of reconsolidated their position, they were still faced with a very serious problem, which was that they were still surrounded and they were still besieged. The Ethiopian government continued to uh, operate essentially a siege around the entire region, preventing aid and food and trade and so on from getting in. And the situation within Tigray was, was dire. Because of the war mobilization, because of the closing of the Eritrean border, because of the fact that very little could get in or out, the humanitarian situ situation was terrible. There was already very severe food insecurity in some places, famine. Uh, so they were certainly faced with a big problem, which is that they had to break the siege. Which ways could they have gone? One option you might have said, well, they could try to invade north towards Asmara in, in Eritrea, break the siege that way. Another, they could have tried to perhaps you know, establish lines uh, uh, to the west. Another, they could have tried to make for the sea through um, Eritrea, through Ethiopia's Afar region and try to establish you know, a way to get in, um, aid and supplies from that way. And then the final approach was perhaps they could try and go south, take on the government forces once again, and try to capture Addis. And what they elected for was the, was the latter of those approaches. They attempted to go south. They launched, in fact, a multi-front um, campaign south through the Afar region and through Amhara, and of course, down the main A2 road towards Addis Ababa itself. And they tried to, to take the national capital. In some respects, this was a, a, a mirroring of what had happened in 1991. In 1991, the TPLF had headed south and had successfully captured Addis and had initiated this new period of EPRDF rule, which involved their political ascendancy as well. And I think that probably the decision was made that they should try to go for a repeat of that. In the event they were it, it, surprisingly successful, the international reporting, the little international reporting that there was in the war at this time, uh, painted it as a series of, of uh, quite stunning battlefield victories. And there's no question that that was basically correct. The Tigrayan forces were able time and again to win major battles against the, the Ethiopian National Army, uh, routing them, capturing towns and moving at quite a pace. And they go all the way down to Desi and then approaching Debrecina, which so were almost at the out, the outskirts, you know, perhaps 75, 100 miles away from Addis Ababa itself. These are towns which, when they were captured in 1991, really initiated the fall of the, the old regime. Uh, and they look like they're about to do a repeat of that again. And nonetheless, they are then stopped in a dramatic fashion. The story that's, that Plot and Vaughan and uh, others, the New York Times coverage, for example, told about how that happened relied on military technology. The idea was that Abiy Ahmed's government, the Ethiopian government, had managed to get hold of a sufficient quantity of drones from Iran, from Turkey, uh, from China, and was able to use those drones to finally defeat the Tigrayan forces rather than fighting them on the ground. My view is that that may have been overstated. There's often a tendency in uh, contemporary war reporting to put a lot of emphasis on technology as the sort of master key for, for understanding all of this. And there's no question that drones played a fairly important role. But there are other considerations. The Tigrayan forces, for example, were clearly overstretched. Having already suffered for you know, some years under debilitating humanitarian situation, they had covered an enormous amount of territory very quickly. Their supply lines were long. And they'd also opened them up themselves up to attack to reattacks on the eastern side from the Afar region, and that's exactly what happened. So, in my view, drones played an important part in eventually turning the tide of the war for the second time, but perhaps not as important as old field artillery did. A lot of the fighting ended up being traditional infantry artillery fighting, very grueling, very bloody, and the 
anyway, the in, in in the event the Tigrayans were turned back and they were forced right back to to Tigray, more or less on, along the same routes that they had come. And what days are we at at this point? This bring this brings us back to to twenty to the spring of twenty twenty one. And the reimposition, basically, so excuse me, the summer of 2021, and the reimposition, basically, of a second siege of Tigray. At this point, there's already been an enormous number of people killed. The University of Ghent makes an, an estimate of somewhere between uh, 380 and 600,000 people killed. Uh, enormous number of civilians, great deal of soldiers and irregulars, and so on as well. And the situation is terrible. The toll that's taken on the country is absolutely enormous, scarcely believable. Uh, nonetheless, a second siege is then reimposed by the government on Tigray, and the situation becomes quite dire. And it, it, it stays in that sort of suspension until about October of 2022. Once we hit October of 2022, you've got this uh, decision by Abiy Ahmed's government to go for a final push. They once again reinvade Tigray. Critically, they capture the town of Shire. Uh, mostly using field artillery, but also with some help from drones again. And they're able to fully route the TDF and they get as close as they can to a victory. In November 2022, it becomes clear to the Decrians that the war is probably over, that they've, you know, they've lost their chance on the battlefield by trying to make trying to make for Addis Ababa. And they are forced into an ignominious surrender and they sign a peace agreement in November of 2022 in Pretoria in South Africa. Why did this war attract so little attention internationally from politicians and the media? I mean, the population of Ethiopia is nearly 130 million people. It's one of the it's one of the biggest countries in the world by population. And at the time, one of the figures who was trying to draw attention to it was the the Director General of the World Health Organization, who is Tigrayan, and he was as well as you know, doing his best to to manage a global pandemic. He was also would draw attention to what was happening. But the, on the whole. The international community responded with indifference, largely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most remarkable things about this war is not just its sheer scale, but also its severity. I mean, when the war was at its height, there really wasn't anywhere else in the world you would want, you would want to have been less than in Tigray. It was truly horrific. And um, the head of the World Health Organization, as you said, just gave the Jesus, has said at the time, well, in January 2022, I believe, that there was nowhere in the world that we're witnessing hell like we're witnessing in Tigray. That was the scale of the situation. And this is, you know, we're about to witness the start of the Ukraine war, but these conflicts are nonetheless are running, for, at least for, for part of the time, side by side. That's the sort of scale we're talking about. And in addition, I mean, the war in Ethiopia, uh, unlike in Ukraine, was a war of sort of shifting fronts. And because of that, civilians in captured towns were exposed to the violence of armed divisions in a way which has, for the most part, not been the case in Ukraine, although certainly in some cases it has been. Um, so what developed was this striking mismatch between the reality of the, events on the, of the events on the ground and the paucity of the attention that they received. And I mean, I think that the only conclusion you can draw from this is that there is this general hierarchy of concern that we tend to apply to the world. To be to be charitable about it, I think you could probably point to the to the geography and say that the level of concern that there is for atrocities or for conflicts around the world follows some kind of geographic gradient, perhaps in correlation to uh, you know the distribution of global GDP or something like that. A war in Europe or East Asia is of the highest concern. Then perhaps the Middle East, where you've got the energy resources. After that, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and finally Africa. Uh, but I think that you know that explanation is also clearly insufficient, right? It's, it's obvious that 
the priorities here are shaped by other considerations. You know, care about human suffering is 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 obviously bound up with race, most importantly. And in addition, it's it's just as powerfully perhaps uh, tied up with political considerations. So we don't we don't have a good perhaps we don't have a good academic framework for this. But the clearest one might have been put forward by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman in the 1970s in a book that I believe is out of print now, in which they describe the conditioning of responses to atrocities according to what they call a, a political ideological concerns rather than commitment to human rights. And they identify three types of atrocities. The first are constructive. Those are the ones that are basically supported by the, the government or state that you happen to be in. The second are the nefarious ones. They're, they're done by the enemy and you know all the attention goes there. And then the third, which the Ethiopian war probably falls into, are benign bloodbaths, ones which nobody really cares about on any side and therefore end up being essentially ignored or treated with indifference. The, the danger, as you make clear in the piece, is that if you say no one's paying attention, that's overlooking the, the millions of people who are directly involved. And obviously their attention is there. But when we say the attention of, of, of the West, of the global North, of the, of the British government, of the American government, of the Anglophone media, should we say, that's, you know. Absolutely. I mean, this, the debate over forgotten conflicts, in my view, immediately raises the question of, well, forgotten by whom? Who's doing the forgetting? Certainly not the the people involved. Who we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people fighting over massive, uh, you know, swathes of territory, enormous numbers of civilians killed. Um, it's not forgotten forgotten for, for them. Uh, so this boils down to a question of perspective and a question of of priorities and a question of this hierarchy. I think we impose uh, on the world when we talk about armed conflict. And you've you've talked about some of the countries that supported Abiy in this war. Did Tigray have any international support? Where, who was arming them? I think, well, in terms of the Tigrayan region ended up being really isolated and during the course of the war, partly for its geographic position, partly because of the nature of the pincer movement that was that was militarily imposed on it. Um, but in terms of international uh, opinions towards the war, mostly there weren't any. <laughs> to the extent that there were, however, there was sort of significant, I think it must be said, the most significant uh, support for the Ethiopian government's position. Um, it's worth remembering that until very recently, Abiy Ahmed was really presented as a reformer and as a breath of, breath of fresh air. He was fated at Davos. He was praised by the IMF. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for the uh, deal quashing differences with Eritrea. And so, and he was also written up in very complimentary terms in the international press right through to the beginning of the war. Abi was the darling. Uh, and yet, uh, we look back now and say how little that was based on. So, yes, a peace deal on a frozen con conflict in Africa, that was treated as something very good. But there was no one, very few people took, uh, took, bothered or paid attention enough to look at what was going on or what dynamics were really at play there. Um, so that was a very interesting thing. I mean, China and Russia supported Abiy uh, throughout the war, and Plot and Vaughan make the case that there were serious attempts by the United States uh, and also by Europe to bring a halt to the killing. But uh, in my view, that's somewhat overplayed. In fact, while the war was going on, the US published its country strategy for Ethiopia, which talked about a new era of partnership. Uh, subsequently, Anthony Blinken has visited Addis and has uh, you know, talked about again, uh, a refunding of the partnership between the US and Ethiopia. And I think rather than sort of a serious attempt to bring an end to the war, there was, again, something close to a polite looking away, uh, which contained a complicity of its own kind. 
And what is the situation in Tigray now? It's more than a year since the ceasefire peace, we can call it peace, was signed in Pretoria. How many people are still in refugee camps? How many people still don't have food? The damage that the war did and, and continues to do in Tigray has been very deep. Firstly, I mean, the atrocities themselves have generally been covered up. There's no question that we still don't know the correct number of victims um, you know, right across the region. But on top of that, there's you know enormous damage to agricultural land. Farmers have lost cattle and crops. The power supply to the region remains extremely uncertain, although there is at least you know the possibility of getting some fuel now. And there's still even internal uh, travel controls on Tigray, which are imposed and then taken off or reimposed at various times. And there's a general political crisis. So the situation is is really quite dire. Um, the, the biggest problem probably from the beginning of the war and right through to the present has been food. There have been numerous times when there's been uh, real risks of a full-blown famine right across the region, which you would think, perhaps given Ethiopia's uh, history, might draw more attention than it has, You know, not just with live aid, but with you know the history of terrible famines in the 70s. Uh, but more or less, that hasn't happened. So the situation is still really quite terrible. Um, unfortunately, even the limited attempts to bring some kind of sucker have also run into serious problems. So, uh, you know, in last May, the World Food Programme actually suspended food aid to Tigray because the disbursements were going stolen. I think that, well, you know, hundreds have died you know, of, of starvation since then. And I think what that points to is just the, the general level of destruction and uh, fragmentation and chaos that still is in place. Um, so the, in some respects, the war, though a peace agreement was signed uh, more than a year ago now, continues in a in a considerable way in Tigray and also in the rest of Ethiopia. But Abi is looking elsewhere now, it seems. And as you, you end end your piece by saying that he's he's signed a memorandum with the breakaway regime in Somaliland, so going against his former allies in the Somalian government, for access to a port on the Red Sea. In October last year, you said that he declared the country Ethiopia has a right to port access to the Red Sea, which of course it used to have when Eritrea was part of Ethiopia. The Red Sea at the moment is in the news because it's affecting British trade, so so something the British media care about it. How important or, or useful is it to think about the conflicts in Ethiopia in a wider regional context of I mean, just thinking about the countries which border the Red Sea, that there's a civil war in Sudan that's been going on for more than nine months. Again, to very little, you know, shockingly little outside interest. Um, there's a civil war in Yemen has been going on for more than 10 years. So without diminishing the differences between these conflicts, you know, is it possible or helpful to consider them in a, in a broader regional context? Are they connected? I think there's no question that they're connected and also that they're connected up with, uh, with Arby's project. I mean... The civil war in Ethiopia, I think, ultimately was Abiy's war rather than being, uh, you know, something that he was pushed into by Isaias Afwerki in Eritrea or by other regional forces or by the TPLF. And um, the ambitions there have not been limited to Ethiopia's borders. Uh, so, as you said, he's begun speaking more and more about the need for a port on the Red Sea. Ethiopia is, of course, landlocked. Uh, and it was initially unclear what exactly he meant by that. We've since got some more information, which is that Abi signed a memorandum of understanding, an agreement with the breakaway Somaliland region in Somalia, which would grant Ethiopia access to the port of Berbera in exchange for international recognition for Somaliland. 
Somaliland has been sort of de facto independent for 30 years now, but it hasn't had the, the international recognition. And Ethiopia doing that is a major, major step in the region. In fact, it's already ignited something of a minor regional crisis. Uh, it means, for example, that Abiy has uh, you know, turned his back or broken ties with Somalia, which assisted him in the war in Tigray. It's the Somali government is is not happy about this. In fact, uh, leader uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed travels to travelled to Asmara recently for for talks uh, about this. Uh, it's it's caused something of a stir as far north as Egypt, for example, which has its own problems with Ethiopia over the constructions of the dams on the Nile. Uh, so this has already become a major issue. With regard to the port access in the Red Sea, uh, Ethiopia has made some use of, of ports in, in the Somaliland-controlled territory for some time. And in fact, there's been a construction of roads between Berber and Ethiopia since 2019, I believe. So this is not an idea that's been plucked straight from the air. But what has happened is that this new idea of a general regional crisis occurring in the Horn of Africa at the same time that we have the major crisis in the Red Sea. Um, this level of sort of destabilization has become something really quite important and, as we've seen, important to the world economy. Uh, so with the Red Sea, of course, you've, you've got the port of Berber not too far away from the Bab al-Mandeb. You've got the current international military operations that are going on by the US and the UK against the Houthis in, in Yemen. And what that points to, I think, is, is that striking case where you have the Red Sea bounded at the north by the Suez Canal and the at the south by the Bab al-Mandeb Strait being so important to international trade, to international energy trade, container shipping from China to Europe and so on. And yet on both sides, you have Somalia and to the Western side, Yemen to the East, two states that are essentially broken, that have that have suffered so much from conflict recently and continue to in connection with the war of Ethiopia on the Somali side, which are totally incapable of, of sort of uh, keeping an environment that is conducive to international container shipping, for example. Uh, so that's been a really interesting development and one that is sort of really threatens that whole regional regional security system in a way that we haven't seen for many, many years. In Somalia, for example, the, the civil war has been going on for 30 years since the fall of the, the junta in 1991. In Yemen, you've had a major civil war since the fall of Ali Abdullah Saleh in uh, February of 2012. Uh, the Houthi attacks on ships in the sea itself. And in both these cases, you can see this, that what, what used to be relatively recognizable states have essentially disintegrated, leaving this, this kind of chaotic situation, which I think probably RB is hoping to take advantage of. But one of the things which, in terms of countries which have bases on the Red Sea, that the French, the Chinese, the US, um, Japan has a base in Djibouti, and yet you have all these huge global powers which have military and naval bases here, and yet at the same time, there are you know, these wars going on alongside them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable fact. And I think, you know, one tempting story might be to say, well, here we have yet more evidence of, uh, you know, the decline of the American empire. Okay, this is, this is the new multipolar world, middle powers, chaos, and so on. And yet, if we look at the, the Red Sea crisis with the Houthis, that's not been quite right. I mean, it's certainly true that uh, the situation has gotten quite out of hand and very much against the wishes of the U.S., Nonetheless, in terms of actually trying to come up with you know, some attempt at this, as you said, the, the bases of other powers except the US and Djibouti have been essentially dormant on this question. So what's been left is this sort of what I've called flailing violence as an attempt to solve it. The strikes by the US on the Houthis in Yemen, uh, with the UK, of course, participating. 
Um, but yet they have this sort of this strange absurdity to them. You have, for example, British pilots flying eight hours from Cyprus with aerial refueling, you know, halfway uh, in order to drop precision guided munitions on a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Hajar province in Yemen. It's sort of absurd. And uh, with thus far, at least, with no um, you know, detectable effect on him, on being able to control the situation at all. Uh, so it has this 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 real tendency to to make it look like no one's in charge and no one has that much interest in ultimately in 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 forcing a solution to the situation. On top of that, I think that as with the war in Ethiopia, you have a general sort of ignorance of Yemen and of the Houthis that and in that va- vacuum, which are, sort of allows for wild assertions. So the the head of Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, for example, uh, was able to feel on live television, television that she could say the Houthis were doing what they were doing because of uh, apocalyptic ideology, uh, which I think points to, you know, not just being ill-informed, but also kind of incurious about the situation. Uh, and this is the situation, and that, that's the nature of the crisis we're faced with, I think, that combination of, uh, of a kind of sullen indifference and also incuriosity. And is there anything to be said here about the the decline of of British power? That obviously Britain's involved in the the attacks on on Houthi bases in Yemen, but until until the nineteen sixties, of course, Aden in southwest Yemen was was a British colonial possession. I think there certainly is. Which is, I mean, when we go back in history, we would have seen on both sides of the Bab Mandeb in in Djibouti and also in Aden. We would have seen colonial possessions in the case of Djibouti of France and in the case of Aden of, of Britain, which established uh, originally a colonial presence and then a coaling station there in order to control basically the same fundamental trade routes that we're, we're talking about today. Of course, they would have been between, say, Bombay and and London rather than between Shanghai and Rotterdam, but basically they're the same sort of picture. And so these questions, you know, the, the history may not be identical, but it certainly rhymes uh, in, in some sense, uh, so n- yeah, no, no question. Where where previously there have been these often failed attempts, in fact, for for international empires or orders to try to impose their own wills on the Red Sea and on these trade routes, and they've often pro- proved to be relatively fleeting. And perhaps we're seeing some sort of some sort of version of that also today, um, with notable differences, obviously. With Britain's case, of course, I mean, there's simply no question that the ability of the the British Army or Navy to uh, project influence internationally has greatly diminished. And in most respects, that's probably a net positive for the world, given the, the history there. Um, today, what we seem to see mostly is a fairly ineffectual uh, posturing designed to satisfy a political alignment with the United States rather than sort of any uh, necessarily concrete political objectives. Um, there have been calls in the UK to deploy the Aircraft carriers, for example, to the region in order to try and uh, you know do a better job of holding up the British side of these uh, strikes against the Houthis. Tom Sharp, for example, in the Telegraph has been running a campaign in favour of that. Um, but there's a real question as to whether Britain even has the capacity to do that. Whether that even if that political decision were made, there would necessarily be enough uh, material, enough ships, enough. Uh, aircraft and enough people willing to fly them in order to have any kind of meaning or full effect? I think the answer is probably not. And how, I mean, coming back to Ethiopia and to Tigray, is it possible to look at that war as a post-colonial conflict or is that not the kind of framing that really makes sense in this case? Well, I think broadly speaking, I, I wouldn't characterize it that way, but I think there is an important sort of part of the history which does fit in there, which is that 
uh, the, I mean, Ethiopia developed as a state over you know hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Uh, nonetheless, there was an important intervention in the European imperial period, namely by Italy. You have two attempts uh, in the late 19th century and then again in the early 20th century to, imp- to impose you know, uh, Italian colonial control of Ethiopia. Uh, in, in the first case, um, really bedding in unfortunate differences in, in the ways that Eritrea and Tigray versus the rest of Ethiopia were treated. And in the second uh, attempted occupation of Ethiopia from 1935 onwards, you had, in fact, the the, the full scale and in, in and very brutal in some cases, really terribly criminal occupation by Italian forces of Ethiopia. Um, so that history has, you know, has has its part to play. I think probably what one could point to is that it really did help to bed in this difference between between what were once the northern provinces in Eritrea and Tigray, now of course Eritrea being independent, and how the rest of the rest of the country conceives of itself and is conceived, um, those those differences would certainly be there without the Italian occupation, without Italian colonialism. But that certainly didn't help the picture. And Abi is presumably there for the foreseeable. It certainly looks like it. Uh, Abi has. I mean, the war has set off all kinds of destructive logics of its own. But Abi's position, at least in Addis Ababa, looks to be quite rock solid at the moment. Uh, you know, his 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 project, mo- most obviously in Tigray, has brought forward a great deal of violence, but it has also been involved in a kind of a repressive stabilization in the rest of Ethiopia too. There have been, uh, you know, military operations in Amhara, in Oromo, in, a, in other regions, which Abi has managed to sustain with the kind of logic of, you know, building forth this new federal Ethiopian power source. Uh, but his own political position does look to be quite quite strong at the, at the moment and quite ambitious. I mean, last October, for example, he declared that there was going to be the port, the, the attempt at the port agreement. And he's also have this major plan to build a new presidential palace complex, perhaps mirroring Erdogan in Turkey, uh, which he says is intended to fill a, pro- a prophecy made interestingly by his mother uh, that he would be the seventh king of Ethiopia, and that seems to be more or less his program. For now, there doesn't seem to be too much of a of a challenge that can be posed to it. Tom Stevenson, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Tom's piece in the twenty fifth of January issue of the LRB, along with Susan Eilenberg on Keats, Randall Kennedy on Congress v Harvard, Sheila Fitzpatrick on Western attempts to reverse the Russian Revolution, and Liam Shaw on fossils. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.